Well, welcome everybody joining us online, sitting on couches, phones, tablets, IT, uh, Apple TVs, Amazon Fire Sticks, wherever you are at home, as well as every person gathered with us here in person today. My name is John. I serve as pastor here at the Springs. So excited to be with you. Just as MK said, if this is your first time with us, right, and you're just wrestling with the church, or you're new to faith, or you're looking to just grow because you have this interest due to what's going on in our world, or if you've been a follower of Jesus for a long time, wherever you are, we are really glad that you're here. For those of you who do have a faith, I invite you, pray with me, and we'll get started. Father, I thank you for today. I thank you for the privilege that we have to gather as your people, to talk about things that matter to you, and by that, they matter to us. I'm asking that you would do what only you can do in this change lives, that your Holy Spirit would come, empower people to be more like you, empower people who don't know you to come to know you. We can't do this without you. So if you're sitting at home on the couch or if you're here in person, if you would please, if you have a faith, take the next 10 seconds and say a prayer that God would use this time in your life to strengthen you, to help you. If y'all would, please take another 10 seconds and pray for me. Pray that I would be useful to the master. Pray that I would be helpful. Lord, we love you. We give you this time. It's in your name we pray. Amen. Well, again, if you're at home or if you're here Welcome. If you've been tracking with us the past month or so or past few weeks, here's what you know. You know we've been working our way through the book of 2 Timothy, but right as we finished chapter 1, we paused and we jumped into a short three-week series we've been calling Lessons Learning. We, we first, we looked at the role of the local church and how is that a lesson we've been learning in the midst of COVID-19, everything taking place. Last week, we talked about busyness and how it can cripple faithfulness in a frantic schedule. And today, we are going to talk about racial unity. Here's the first thing I have to start with. In the series of this, in the timeline of events that broke down, this is coming as the third talk out of three. It should have been the second. If you're a member at the Springs, or you're part of our email list, right? I'm imagining most of you already know this. Last week we came, we talked about busyness. After we talked about busyness from a conversation with a gal who's not even a member, there led this realization and conviction of we absolutely should have talked about racial tension, reconciliation, and unity a week ago. I should have. On behalf of the leaders of the Springs, trustees, we should have. Why did we not? There was zero intention to avoid a topic. There was zero malevolence, but we missed it. I imagine some of you noticed. I imagine some of you didn't. But here's the reason I start with that. This talk, I'm so excited to give today, but I start with, again, the apology. And if you didn't get it, get email info at Springs. We'll send it to you. And the honest, will you forgive me and us for not having put this at week two? The only saving grace, if you could even use that language, the only saving grace that I think comes out of it is there was another week in my life to learn more, 
to get better and to pursue faithfulness. And it's because of that, here's what I want to talk about today, guys. I want to talk about not just when you turn on the news, what do you see? I want to talk about not just the tragedy of George Floyd, his loss of life. I don't want to talk about everything when you just turn on the television. I want to talk about how the church must lead the charge for racial unity. The church must lead the charge for racial unity. And when I say the church, this really matters. So if you don't believe in God or like you're, you're back to church and it's new to you, I, I need to define that. I mean the people of God. I mean called out ones. I mean those, regardless of skin color, who are far from God and by his grace have been brought near. That divine institution, we believers, I don't care what your skin color is. We must lead the charge for racial unity. This is how we're going to end our series, Lessons Learning. Does that mean that this one talk is an all-encompassing approach to a biblical reality of racial reconciliation? No, I would be the first one to say it's going to be a great starting point, though. Is this something the Springs has cared about, I've cared about, we as a body have cared about long before the tragic loss of life in George Floyd? Yes. As the people of God, we are opposed to sin in every form. We exalt righteousness. Why? That's what Jesus Christ has done in our life. And guys, you can just turn on the news and here's what you know. You know we need unity. You know that division is at an all-time high. Politicians won't make it happen. Though good, though wonderful, though great, civic leaders and activists won't be able to make it happen. You cannot legislate away sin. What do you require? The transformative power of God. That's what we're going to talk about. Here's why I set that up that way. Here's what I think a few of you, or not a few of you, I don't think this is the majority, right? I think there's two different demographics that I'm scared are going to dismiss this. Like as soon as you start, like you'll change, you'll watch something else, or you'll shift. And here's why I think you're perhaps nervous in two ways. The first one, the first one is if you come and you talk about racial unity, it means I'm going to stand up here and, and just heap, and I'm going to use honest terms, I'm just going to like heap white guilt on people. It's not what we're here to do. So you know, so you know, I have zero white guilt. But I think some folks, as we talk about this, we, you just innately start to feel that and you want to avoid the topic. I'm asking you, please don't dismiss this. Listen to what God has to say. I think there's going to be another category of people that no matter, no, I shouldn't say no matter, that, that's two, uh, two broad strokes of painting. But no matter the heart, the posture, the connection to God's word, the reality of the history of God's people and how many of us past and at times present have missed this, I still won't come and be woke enough for you. I still won't come and be all the way this far. So if you right now, if you sit here in nerves and you're at either extreme, here's what I'm asking. Please stay with me. This matters too much. The church must lead the charge for racial unity. 
We're going to look at one verse. Typically, when you come here, we expositionally work through a section. Today, straight up, I'm just going to own it. It's, It's purely topical. That's absolutely what we're doing. We're looking at one verse in Genesis chapter 1. We're going to be in verse 27. Why? Because we have to remind ourselves, if Christ is the hope against sin, if nothing else, if he is the great abolitionist, we have to see what he has always cared about. And as we look at Genesis, we're going to see how the people of God are called to take a stand. After that, what we're going to do is we're going to go, and many of you, you may already know this, we're going to do a little church history lesson. We're going to do a little, it's going to feel like a lot, like you're back in the classroom, and we're going to work through a section of church history that we need to listen to. So at first, while we'll talk about how we take a stand, the next is going to be, what do we do? We take a seat. So we're going to get started. Why? Because i got a lot to say, and I'm really excited about this talk. If you've got a Bible, turn to me, Genesis chapter 1. Genesis chapter 1, verse 27, short, sweet. I'm going to set it up if you're unfamiliar. Here's what's taking place in Genesis 1. It's God creating everything. It's him speaking it into existence. The world, animals, life, humanity. He picks up the dust, and from the dust he breathes life into Adam and Eve. A true man, a true historical woman. And then there's this moment where God's going to describe them, right? And that's the verse we're going to see. And why? It's going to reinforce the truth that we are called to stand for. Does not matter skin color. Turn with me. Genesis chapter 1, verse 27. So God describing his heart, his perspective in the creation of man and woman. Humanity. So God created man in his own image. That's going to be the language we really look at. God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. Guys, as we talk about how the church must lead the charge for racial unity, the first thing we have to do is you have to come and you take a stand. Like maybe perhaps you've heard this week this idea of it's not enough to just not be a racist. You must be anti- racism. Here's what you must know. Remove the the, the word racism. Followers of Christ are always in opposition to unholiness. Always. Sin is a reproach to the people. Righteousness exalts a nation. Love does not rejoice at wrongdoing. Love rejoices with truth. Like a muddied spring or polluted fountain is a righteous man who gives way before wickedness. Christians are always in opposition to unholiness. Does that mean we hate those who are unholy? No, we love them, call them the way Christ called us. But I start here because God, at the foundation of everything, is saying, here is something holy, here is something beautiful, made in my image. What is that? called the Imago Dei. It means made in the image of God. There's this truth, and maybe you've heard this, the word race, people would say it's a social construct. That's honestly, that's fair. There's one race. It is the human race. Biblically, what do you see, especially in the New Testament, ethnos? You see the Greek word for ethnicity, culture, tribes, that reality. What unites humanity? Does not matter your skin color does not matter your gender, 
Does not matter your age. Does not matter your stage of development or process in dying. You are made in the image of God. And by that, you are an image bearer. You represent that to the world. So what does that mean? That the characteristics of God are in all people, whether you believe in him or you don't. Let me give you some examples. Physical. Physical. There's literally the resemblance of Christ in God in the physical attributes where you bear the image. Mental. A mental category. How God, he's creator. He can decide. He can choose. He can form. You can do that. I can do that. Relational. You existing in the Imago Dei, you can have love, harmony, friendship, connection. Spiritual. You can think and pursue God. My, my dog, Riley, she's this beautiful, I think, she's pretty hyper, right? She's this like uh, four-year-old chocolate lab. She's my great friend. Love, Riley. I have never once prayed for the salvation of my dog. Why? Not Imago Day. I'm all for dogs. This ain't anti-dogs, right? Not Imago Day. My daughter Lily, my son Trip, I have repeatedly prayed for the salvation. Imago Day. Spiritual connection, moral connection, right? My dog Riley, she repeatedly this week has been like ripping open our trash can and like goes in after food. You walk in, she has like no moral compass. Even my daughter, Lily, when she knows she's acting in disobedience, there's a violation of her conscience. Why? Humanity. I'm not saying we agree on everything, but we know right and wrong. Do you see? This is a Mago day. This is at the very beginning. And Adam and Eve weren't white. Adam and Eve weren't black. Probably technically far closer to Palestinian. Right? What does that mean for you and me? It means that every person on the face of the planet, every single one of us, you have significance and value. You are the crown jewel of God's creation. You are. The second thing that it means is you have inherent dignity. You have inherent dignity. This is the standard of humanity. Because here's what happens when we shift this standard, and that's what we're going to talk about. When we shift this standard, terrible things begin to happen. Well, we're going to talk about the racial injustice that has occurred, that can occur. I want to show some other threads, though, of how when you forsake Imago Dei, sin issue, uh, embracing unholiness, what God is opposed to, what Christ came to die for, it's a real dangerous slope. What happens when you forsake Imago Dei? What becomes true? You start to change a view of the reality of life in the womb. You start to change a view of the reality of life at the end of life. You start to change how you're called to love the marginalized. You ever heard of groups of people that have often been called the untouchables? That is not Imago Dei. You begin to care less or view as subhuman, those physically or mentally challenged. You begin to change a view of the elderly. You begin to all of a sudden say it's okay to traffic in humanity. 
broken images that you could find all of a sudden become okay. Because what is it? It's an object. It's not made in the image of God, and you're stealing. Gender equality, your self-image issues are an imago day problem. And then what flows, as soon as you begin to see this, this reduction of humanity, what flows? Racial prejudice, racial injustice. I know I'm, I'm saying all those words, and some of you are like, wait, 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 but today it's different than then. Stay with me. And some of you are like, say it louder. You're not saying it loud enough. Stay with me. Here's why I think this matters. There's a verse in the book of Revelation. You don't have to turn there. I'll, I'll read it. So Genesis is the first book in the library of your Bible. Your Bible 66 books. Revelation is the last book. They are all authored and inspired by God. Genesis establishes Imago Dei. Revelation reinforces it. There's a lot of context you could set up. Revelation, mostly, you get this beautiful picture into what heaven will be like. Here's how heaven is described in Revelation 7, and this matters. Revelation 7 After this, I looked, and behold, a great multitude that no one could number from every nation. Hear that? From every nation, from all tribes and peoples and languages, standing before the throne, before the Lamb, clothed in white robes, with palm branches in their hands. The text is going to go on to say they're worshiping God. What is true in a heavenly reality? Imago Dei stays with you. Every tribe, every tongue, every nation. You remember how there's one race, human race. Your ethnicity will be represented in heaven. In heaven, I will be white. In heaven, not everybody's going to be white. In heaven, not everyone will be black. In heaven, not everyone will be Palestinian. We're not going to blend. There's beauty in the Imago Dei diversity. If that is true then... We protect that now. Here's, here's some ways I think this matters. This is why we should never say things like, well, I, I'm colorblind. I don't see color. God sees color. The cultural ethnic identity is meant to be cherished, valued, and loved. We would say things like, well, ah, you, you would. I, I won't project it on you. But here's some ways I think it would show up. Would you ever be nervous if your son or your daughter, they came home and they dated someone interracially? This is off the top of my head. I'm fairly certain, at least federally, and people did it before, interracial marriage wasn't legalized in America until 1967. Would that worry you? If so, that's an Imago Dei sin issue in you. Because if there's any other thing that would discourage you about who a child would date, besides, do they love and fear God? You got a sin issue. You need to deal with that. Would you ever discriminate based on the color of skin when it came to hiring? Would you feel more comfortable? Would you feel less comfortable? It's an Imago Day issue. Would you ever use, and I'm not saying you would, would you ever use Southern heritage as an excuse for hidden prejudice? Are there parts of town that you wouldn't go to? Are there grocery stores that you wouldn't shop at? For any other reason than you like the produce one place than the other? If so, you must repent of sin and the Imago Dei. This is not white guilt. What does this mean? 
You remember how we talked about how we are called to speak on behalf of holiness? You and I are called to speak out against racism in our world. What, what is that? Black Lives Matter is an Imago Day issue. Black Lives Matter is an Imago Day issue. Here's what this means. By saying Black Lives Matter, okay? Stay with me because I know some of you, you're like, oh man, that's it. I'm leaving. I knew we shouldn't have come here. I knew we should have watched somebody else online. I get it. Stay with me. By saying that, it's not saying you hate police officers. By saying that, it's not you saying defund the police. By saying that, it's not an admission of white guilt. By saying that, it's not admitting that you don't think all lives matter. By saying that, it's not saying you agree with every person or every leader in the Black Lives Movement. By saying that, it is not giving credibility or credence to rioting, violence, looting, destruction of property. No. It's seeing past that to acknowledge Imago Dei. You don't decide that. I don't decide that. God created it. We take a stand. And guys, we have to. Why? Because the church has to lead in this. Why does the church have to lead in this? Because we know what it really means to be reconciled. And if God reconciled us to him, we can bring unity anywhere. Does that mean all will agree? No. But does that mean we must lead this? Yes. Thinking about this truth, the church must lead the charge for racial unity. I was talking with my community group about this this week. There's a guy in it, my buddy John. I loved what he said because we're talking about this, and he didn't know where I was going this Sunday, the direction of anything. And he just said, man, I've heard before, the church is supposed to lead in this. But why in the world is anybody ever going to listen to the church? No one's going to listen to the church. And he kind of made this reference to, if you look at the church's batting record, batting record with regard to racial unity, it's not a good record. Whether you know this or you don't, I want to spend the next time talking about how I believe part of the way that the church must lead the charge for racial unity is not just take a stand. It's take a seat. Take a a seat. Specifically, I'm going to be more specific with what I mean. I think one of the greatest ways that the church can lead for racial unity is to first sit down and listen. I think we all have this tendency, I can have it too, well, what about this? Well, well, I didn't do that. That wasn't me. Why are you putting that on me? Well, I didn't do this. It wasn't me. And all of a sudden, I can create in my life we can create, and, and this is true regardless of your skin color. This is a human problem. Proverbs 18:13 speaks to it. If one gives an answer before he hears, it is his folly and shame. The church must come ready to listen. I love Proverbs 1:5. Let the wise hear and increase in learning, and the one who understands obtain guidance. You see how the church, the people of God, we must lead. But I'm going to share why I think that first starts by listening, by taking a seat.
What I want to share with you guys is something that I've really reflected on, that I've, I've acknowledged, and that is the history of the evangelical church, specific to New World and then America. The history of the evangelical church. Here's what I mean by evangelical. You've perhaps heard that term for like politics and things like that, and it, and it now means something way more negative than what it ever used to. I would be very careful with some folks, depending on what they mean by evangelical, right? Because most folks take that as, okay, way you, the way you vote. Never go down that path. Evangelical, by its definition, generally, it's meant to mean you believe Jesus Christ is the Savior of the world. You believe you have to spread that message. You evangelize, you proselytize. And the third thing, you believe that the Bible is authoritative, that when God says Imago Dei, he means Imago Dei. But our evangelical church, the history of that, I want to walk us through it. Because here's why the church has to lead. Because guys, I'm telling you, the church missed it in the past. Does that mean you missed it individually? Nope. Not saying that. But I'm saying the reputation, the generational reputation, here's what the evangelical church is inheriting. And, and to be honest, so much of this, and whether you're, you're watching here and you're part of a minority community or different skin color or whatever that might be, this is really the white evangelical church. I'm going to go through a couple different time periods. I'm going to try to move quickly for the sake of time. A few time periods. There's far more than this, but I'm just trying to show this is why I think we've got to listen, and it creates this posture of humility. 1619 to 1700. Think back, right? You're going to history class now, all right? So stay with me at home. If you're bored, come back, stay with me. 1619 to 1700. Many would say 1619 was the start, some say before, of the transatlantic slave trade. The first ship to come over was called the White Lion. What was it? People went primarily to West Africa, kidnapped, stole, and then brutally shipped people. African men, African women, African children to the New World. Sometimes they went to the Caribbean. Often they came to the New World and everything here that eventually becomes the United States. I, I love this. The first group that was stolen and kidnapped there's record that two years later, they were given Christian names and they were baptized by their owners. Imagine that. Baptism is literally a picture of the old sinful you is gone. You are raised in newness of life, in freedom of Christ. And I own you. 1700 to 1776. We're moving on, 1700, 1776. There were amazing men of the Christian faith that brought to life the beauty of the gospel, that brought to life the beauty of God's word and the teachings of it. And they totally missed it on this. A man who personally, through his writings, impacted me, Jonathan Edwards. He owned six slaves. George Whitfield, this famous American preacher that led to a revival across America was not opposed to slavery. In 1776, the only denomination, Christian denomination, to denounce slavery was the Quakers. The Quakers, praise God for that, they eventually gave rise to the Underground Railroad. 1776, there's this famous line, you, you guys know it. Thomas Jefferson wrote, Declaration of Independence, we hold these truths to be self-evident, 
that all men are created equal. Now hear this, that are endowed by their creator. Certain unalienable rights, that among these are life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. Thomas Jefferson wrote this as he owned approximately 175 slaves. Thomas Jefferson wrote this as he mistreated, and because it's family service, you got to use honoring language. Many of his slaves. And when he wrote it, what he really meant, and you see it institutionally, was God created all white males. What was not including that? Women. What was not included that? Minority communities, in particular at that time especially. Slaves. This is not white guilt. This is history. 1787 to 1865. So we're coming out of the Revolutionary War and we're going up to the Civil War. Here's, here's just a few things. 1787, right after that, the South had become its own. They come, they have the Electoral College. They don't have as high of a population. What? They don't have as high of a white population as the North. So they come and slaves are literally given the dignity of three-fifths a human. And you make the three-fifths compromise, which was put forward by James Wilson. James Wilson, according to tradition, follower of Jesus Christ. 1787, that same year, there was St. George Episcopal Church in Philadelphia. St. George Episcopal Church, there were parts of the black community that would come and attend. From all the study, I imagine they were slaves, but you don't know at that time, honestly. They would come and they would engage in church service. They had a section they'd come and sit, but there came one day where they were no longer allowed to, and they were removed. That led to the formation of AME the African Methodist Episcopal Church, the black church in America, was created because they were not welcomed in the church of God. That's crazy. Christian denominations, up until civil, or excuse me, the Civil War and thereafter, they're often in support of the racist institution of slavery. Because you've got to remember what it was. It was free labor in exchange for human dignity. In 1845, the Southern Baptist Convention was created after it split with Baptists over the topic of slavery. In 1861, the General Assembly of the Presbyterian Church declared the slave system had. So speaking of slavery, right at the start of the Civil War, they said it had been kindly and benevolent, and it had proved to be real effective discipline. It concluded that slavery was a black man's normal condition. This is not to put hate on Baptists. This is not to put hate on Presbyterians. This is to put hate on the reality. Not even hate. That's not great language. This is to acknowledge the reality of the evangelical tradition. It missed it. Notice I didn't say I missed it. 1865 to 1965. Coming out of the Reconstruction era in the South, the KKK was formed. It was actually in it was formed in response to the Republican Party was trying to create political equality, equity for the black community. They were literally formed to terrorize black community as well as white supporters. It began to die down, but right around 1915, there was a resurgence of the KKK. 
Except this time, they changed their requirements in 1915. Before, in order to join the KKK, you had to have two qualities. You had to be a man, and you had to be white. In order to join the KKK in 1915, you had to be a man, you had to be white, and you had to be a Protestant Christian. Religion that made a central piece. Am I saying that represented everybody? Nope. But guys, I'm telling you, the majority. From the time of Reconstruction to 1965, what did you first have? You had black codes and they had Jim Crow era, where it was literally institutionalized economic, educational, and social disadvantages. Was this true of all people? No. But I love, so there's a professor, Carolyn Renee DuPont. She wrote in the book, Mississippi Praying. Southern white evangelicals in the civil rights movement. It's a bit of a longer quote, but stay with me because there's a few parts that I want us to hold on to. Because I think what you have to feel is what was the general sentiment? What was the environment that was created? While many evangelicals displayed their kindness in personal dealings with blacks, most nonetheless enthusiastically defended a system designed to advantage whites and disadvantage African Americans at every turn most Southern Christians did not regard segregation as a sin. They viewed it as a way of life. I think a more modern one might be, it just is what it is. When school, oh, this is fascinating. When school integration became unavoidable, white evangelicals forsook the public schools in droves in favor of new private schools sponsored by their churches. If we're forced to integrate, let's create separation and then add tuition so there's a paywall. Not saying that's true of everybody. Definitely true of the majority. Guys, throughout this time, white evangelicals were very generally against the civil rights movement. How were they against it? Either an outright speech in condemnation or, and this word matters, silence. Shh. I don't want to make a fuss. Here's why I think this matters. The church must lead in the charge for racial unity. We must lead this charge. But the inherited reputation we have is absolutely damaged. My friend's question of why would anyone listen to the church? They should. They must. But that's why we take a seat. That's why you listen. Because here, even as I reflect, here's our track record. I say our. You don't have to associate with evangelicals. I do. Slavery, it was condoned instead of condemned. Slaveholders were held up and condoned while abolitionists were hunted down. Even after the Emancipation Proclamation, black codes came in, 13th Amendment, Jim Crow laws, Plessy versus Ferguson, separate and equal. Segregation. General theme. Well, hey, it's just better this way. It's good for all. Instead of viewing that as offensive to God. You know what will never exist in heaven? Segregation of any form, implicit, explicit, none of that. Martin Luther King Jr., 
He was specifically asked to stop creating division, to stop making such a fuss. Rather than, how do we come in March? People with far more liberal theology, and it was still then, even white individuals with far more liberal theology, which I am, I am not in support of, they went and marched. God's people must lead this charge. Here's why. I don't share any of that to create a sense of guilt. You should feel, uh, and I don't even like the word guilt. You, guilt is associated when you've done something wrong. Generational passed down sin, God does not hold you responsible for. This is not about guilt. This should absolutely create a holy sense of grief. This should absolutely create a holy sense of remorse and grief. I am not talking about reparations. I'm not. I'm absolutely talking about the church has to embrace a sense of responsibility. The church must lead by God's grace. There have been men and women who have faithfully done this. Black, white, other minority communities that have faithfully done this, even from that time. Was that the major theme? No. But who, who were some of these leaders? William Wilberforce led the abolition of slavery in the UK. John Wesley came, saw the slave trade, denounced it from the UK. Charles Spurgeon, the prince of preachers, was absolutely opposed to it. Dietrich Bonhoeffer came before the rise of the Third Reich, saw the segregation and the dehumanizing of people, and he said, this is what the Nazis are doing. Billy Graham would preach and was often denied multiple places where he could preach. Because after the very beginning, he refused segregated environments. There was faithfulness. There was faithfulness, but that's why I share. If the church wants to lead, we've got to start with listening. Take a seat. It is not acknowledging guilt. It's not saying, I've done something terrible against you. But it's saying, help me learn. Help me listen. Romans 12 Verses 9, and then I'm going to jump to 15. It says, let love be genuine. Abhor, hate what is evil. Hold fast to what is good. Weep with those who weep. This is not about guilt, but there must be grief. This is not about reparations, but we. And I'm talking to you, if you're a believer in Jesus Christ, does not matter the color of your skin. We have a responsibility. Why? We are opposed to sin in all forms, and we exalt righteousness. Why? God was kind enough to do that for us. So how do we do this? What does this look like, especially so many of us, to even enter into this? It's this, it's this terrifying thing. You know what so many... Uh, ah, oh, that doesn't matter. How do we do this? First thing, where do you go to learn about this? Oftentimes you hear people talk about, well, read this book, read this book, read this book. I'm, I'm all for that. You need to read this book. This is the book you need to pick up. Examine Genesis. Examine the law of Moses and the sinfulness of taking someone from their homeland. Examine the truth of the year of Jubilee and the reality, even the biblical difference between a slave, bondservant. Read Philemon and what Christ did for master and slave. Read Galatians in freedom to 
all. Read Revelation and what the future reality will look like. With the Spirit of God in you, this is what you need. Are there resources that are also helpful? Yes. Many of you could, could find them, right, to kind of help curate that list for some of you. I would recommend a book by Dr. Eric Mason. It's called Woke Church. If you don't know what woke means, you can come talk to me after. You can send us an email online. I think the third thing that we need to do, third thing, we need to actively, we need to actively not only speak out, not only listen, but we need to actively try and learn from leaders, biblical leaders from minority communities. And I literally say minority is in less than of the population. Two, I'd commend to you. You can find any from any, right? And even giving examples like this, it's always perilous, but we're still doing it. Two, I'd recommend to you, Dr. Tony Evans, Jackie Hill Perry. If you don't remember the names, you can rewatch this or email us. Follow them online. Listen to their teachings. Listen to their works. Fourth thing, how do we change this? You change this the way you change any form of injustice. You change it the way you change any form of injustice, and here's how that happens. Individual level. You come first before God with the realization of here's what he's called me to, here's what is right and true. If you're a believer in Christ, you recognize you are a sinner. You were set apart from God, and he brought you home. He united you. And from that you say, I'm always in support of righteousness individual understanding. And what happens? Because guys, here's the thing. You cannot legislate away sin. Am I saying that's wrong? No. But I'm saying, if you want to change it, here's how this goes, and it starts with the church. Individual. Because what changes is you change the individual by the grace of God. The friends or the family changes. As the family changes, the neighborhood changes. As the neighborhood changes, the community changes. The city changes. The country changes. Revival starts with individuals. Am I calling you to repent of sins you have not committed? No. But I'm calling you to take seriously the mantle that the church must lead. Why? Dude, it's the power of God that changes this. It's Christ and Christ alone. The kindest man who has ever walked the face of the planet, who loved every person, including you and all of your foolishness, your self-righteousness, mine, and all of my foolishness and all of my self-righteousness. The church must lead the charge for racial unity. I, I'll close with this. This past weekend, I'm, I'm sure some of you, right, you go down to a, a, a demonstration or perhaps a protest. I really credit, there was nothing like rioting and nothing, nothing negative, anything around here. I was standing there, and, and I can remember there's two interactions. Now you're there, a bunch of cars drive by, right? So there's thousands, I don't know, thousands, many people that you can't represent, but there were two things that I specifically took away, right? So I'm going to perhaps make more of those uh, moments, but I think it drives a point. I was standing there, and there was a man that drove by. He had a, a white pickup truck. He rolled down his window. He was black, and he looked at me. 
And he just said with this solemnness, thank you. Cars go by, a whole bunch, some honk and support, some we don't know what to do, so window stays up, we just look straight ahead. Hey, there's no shame, I, I get it. Another car comes by, rolls down the window. This time it was different, it was a white man. Is the black man that said thank you indicative of every black man? Nope. Is the white man that said what he's about to say indicative of everything? Nope. But he looked, and not just to me, but yelled to a crowd, why can't you just get over this already? Here's what's true about both men. I don't know them personally. I don't know the status of their, their salvation with God. I don't know that. But here's what's true. If they don't already know this, then here's what they need to know. You are a sinner. Your sins have offended a holy God. He loves you. He doesn't want you to be apart from him, so he sent his son, Jesus Christ. First century Palestinian Jew who lived a perfect life. Why? So he could go to the cross forsaken by all. Die for the sins of the man that said thank you. Die for the sins of the man that said why can't you move on? Die for my sins. Die for yours. He died on the cross. Three days later he rose from the grave and he bids all people Believe, be reconciled, be united. I love you, I have redeemed you, I have bought you. That is how the church must lead the charge for racial unity. To the redemptive power of God, as people come to know Jesus Christ is true, this message is real, and it is life-changing. You want transformation, you start in the individual and then change a society. But racism is a sin problem. The only solution to sin's problem is Jesus Christ. Because we know him, the church must lead the charge for racial unity. Is today's talk an all-encompassing, holistic approach of how do we do that? No. It is the continuation of where we've been and where we as a body want to go. It's a hard topic. It's not, but it feels hard. I acknowledge that. I appreciate the respect if you didn't dismiss what I was trying to say. Let me pray. Jesus, I thank you for today. Lord, I thank you for your word and what it does in our lives. I pray for this truth. Because of the Imago Day, Black Lives Matter, it's not a political statement against so many things. It's a truth that you proclaimed when you spoke life into dust. It's a truth where we will come with every ethnicity celebrating diversity in heaven, those who believe. Lord, help us to take a stand. And then God, maybe not for all of us, but for those, actually for all of us, we must have a posture of listening and of humility. Help us to take a seat. Help us to listen. And from that, righteously lead. I need your help. We need your help. It's in your name we pray. Amen. Hey, thank you guys for joining us online. If you have questions about anything or folks gathering here in person, 
Again, email us, info at springsnb. But y'all go, have a great week of worship. We'll see you next week.